Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining our conference call. I'm Rachel Harvey-Katz with Business Forward, and I'll be moderating our conversation today with Julia Pimsler. She's the founder and CEO of Little Pim, the leading system for introducing young children to a second language. She's also the author of Million Dollar Women, the essential guide for female entrepreneurs who want to go big. She's going to talk about her mission to help one million women get to $1 million in revenue and access the triple win of money, meaning, and mobility. But first, for those of you who are new to our programming, Business Forward is a national business organization that helps business leaders from across America brief Washington on how to create jobs and accelerate the economy. Over the past several years, we've helped tens of thousands of business leaders brief more than 450 senior administration officials, members of Congress, governors, and mayors. Today's conference call is part of our series with book authors to help you learn about the latest business strategies. Currently, all lines are in listen-only mode. After Julia speaks, there will be time for you to ask questions. You can do this in one of two ways. You can press 1 to indicate you'd like to speak live on the call, or you can email your question to info at businessfwd.org, and I'll read it out loud for you. We'd like to get in as many questions as we can, so you can press 1 or email us at any time, and we'll add you to the queue. Okay, now I'm pleased to welcome Julia Pimsler. Thanks so much, Shimway. It's really great to be here on the call and getting to speak with other business owners. That just makes me so happy. I'm part of a lot of business owner communities, and we have so much to learn from each other. So I'm looking forward to learning from you all, too, during the Q&A. And I see uh, from the list you sent me that we have all different kinds of businesses, which is fantastic real estate and a beer in a grill and a manicure pedicure place. This is just a really exciting list. Um, and you know, I think what many of us have in common as business owners is that we started our business because we were really passionate about solving a problem. So I'm going to start with the problem I was trying to solve, uh, which was language learning for young children, tell you a little bit about my background at Little Pim and how that led me to write the book Million Dollar Women to help more women get to one million in revenues. So I grew up in the language teaching business a little bit because my father created the Pimsleur method, which is an adult language learning method that's an audio method. And um, he created it about 50 years ago, actually, when I was uh, not even born. But um, when I grew up, I was really excited to see how people would easily pick up a language learning this method. And then when I had my own kids about 10 years ago, I really wanted them to learn French. I grew up bilingual in French and always thought that was just one of the best things that my parents gave me, is the ability to speak another language. So I went out looking for some great method for my first son, whose name is Emmett, to learn French, and found there was nothing on the market for little kids. All the studies show that zero to six is the best time for kids to learn a second language. Their brains are just sponges at that age. And it just seemed like a shame that there was nothing good for them. Um, I had been a documentary filmmaker. I had been a nonprofit fundraiser, but never a business person. And even though my father created this method, which is now rather successful, it's a competitor to Rosetta Stone, it was not a successful business when I was growing up. He was really working in academia. So I didn't have any role models of creating a business. 
But I just really wanted to help parents teach their kids a second language. And so I started sketching what a little teacher, a cartoon character would look like who could teach kids a second language and make it fun. And I drew a little panda bear, and that became Little Pim. So Little Pim the panda bear is a language teacher. And I created a video series to help kids learn a foreign language, and that is now sold throughout the United States in Toys R Us and various retail stores. We sell it online. We have partnerships with some of the top technology companies, and we're in 22 countries. So that worked out pretty well, and um, I'm so thrilled to be able to help parents become their kids' first language tutors in 12 languages. But the business story is a little bit of a more up and down one, as I'm sure you're all familiar with as business owners. It's a real roller coaster ride. And so I would say in the first four years, I was just working so hard, you know, head down, taking on so many different tasks at once. I was doing, you know, the accounting and the sales and washing the dishes in the sink and negotiating all of our agreements. And um, I had two little kids at home in the first four years of my business. And I was just working myself basically into the ground. I just became completely exhausted and burnt out after about four years. Um, I still loved helping parents learn, teach their kids a second language. But personally, I was starting to run on empty. And I got to a place about four years ago where I thought, you know what, maybe I just have to shut this down. You know, who am I to be a CEO anyway? I was trained as a filmmaker and a nonprofit fundraiser, and maybe I just don't have the chops to do this. So I was really at a, a real low point. And right around that time, my cousin, who had also grown up in New York where I grew up and had also been running a business, sold his business for over $400 million to a large media conglomerate. And um, that was sort of the, the, final, the final blow, you know, where it was like, oh, God, I don't, even, I don't know what I'm doing at all. And he clearly does. So I decided to call him up. We'd been out of touch for many years and ask him to come give me some advice about my business that I was really struggling with. And I remember he came into our office, and it was a hot day, and the air conditioning wasn't quite working. And uh, we sat down around my little coffee-stained IKEA table uh, with the three interns, you know, head down working. And um, he asked me a lot of questions about the margins, the distribution channels, what our platforms we were using. Some of them I could answer, some of them I couldn't. But at the end of the conversation, he just looked at me and said, you know what, there's no reason to sell this business. You've built a tremendous platform here, and why don't you consider going out and raising venture capital and scaling it up? When he said the words venture capital, I felt like a deer in headlights. I was just like, oh, God, not those guys. Please, please don't make me go talk to those guys. Because I had done nonprofit fundraising, as I mentioned, and some of our uh, biggest givers were working in private equity and hedge funds and venture capital. And I just didn't think that they would understand my business. I didn't think that they would care about a language teaching company for kids. You know, our, our clients were mainly moms. I saw myself very much as a working mom. And most importantly, I didn't speak their language. I didn't think I could go in and meet with venture capitalists and talk to them about, you know, the kinds of questions my cousin was asking me there today, you know, about our margins and our gross margins and um, what was the rate of return over five years and what was the cost of acquisition of a customer. You know, I just didn't have all that buttoned up. So I was kind of like, well, what else have you got? I don't really want to do that. So what, what else is there? But there was no other option, really, unless it was going to be to you know, fold up my dream that I had cared so passionately about and still did. So after a couple of weeks, I realized that I really wanted to grow my business more than I wanted to stay in my comfort zone. 
And that was the big turning point where I realized I still very much wanted to create the top brand in teaching kids a foreign language. There was a huge opportunity here that we had not played out to its fullest. But to do that, I was going to need capital, and I was going to have to go talk to those very VCs that I did not want to talk to. So thus began about a nine-month journey of doing research, talking to CEOs who had been funded, watching episodes of Shark Tank, reading books, just doing everything I could get my hands on to get prepared to go out there and raise the money. And it was then I first learned that only 4% of venture capital is invested in women-led businesses. So that was a tough wake-up call. I realized, okay, I'm just going to have to be twice as good here because the odds are kind of stacked against me. Um, I did have going for me that I had been a nonprofit fundraiser, so I was comfortable asking for money, which I know is a big hurdle many of us face, just being able to sit across from someone and say, will you invest in my business? I had already raised some angel and uh, capital, about $2 million over the course of the four years that I'd been in business, which we'd invested in our product and our marketing. And you know now we needed $2.1 million to get to the next level. So after the nine months of research, I did go out and start pitching. I got a lot of no's, which for those of you who have raised money, no is par for the course. So after about 30 no's and you know lots and lots of pitching, it was really the hardest thing I, I ever did, getting our financials in order, making great pitch deck, going and meeting with you know rooms full of people, mainly men in suits as I anticipated. Um, I found Golden Seeds, which is a VC that is actually focused on women-run companies and mainly has women investors. And I did a big pitch for them. I got a public speaking coach to make sure that I was um, in the right you know, frame of mind and had the right uh, skills to do that pitch. And I got it, and I got called back, and eventually I did get $2.1 million for my company. So that was terrific and, uh, you know, celebrated for about a week and then went right back to work. You know how that is. Uh, then we had to, you know, start fulfilling on everything we had, we had promised during the fundraise. But when I got through that eye of the needle of being one of the few women-led venture-backed companies in the U.S., I thought, now I really get why so few women are funded. It's not that we're any less capable or competent. It's that we don't know how to do this fundraising dance. And it is a dance figuring out how to go pitch to VCs, how to have the right uh, financials, the right deck, and it has to be danced a certain way. And if we don't know the dance, then we're not going to be successful out on the dance floor. So I decided I would start paying it forward, and I started teaching women how to raise angel and venture capital in my conference room, um, just 10 women at a time on the weekends, and that grew into a real passion for helping women learn to raise money. I've now trained about 50 women through that workshop that in-person workshop, um, and they've raised a collective $10 million, and I'm so pleased and proud of them. They're doing great things with their businesses. And that is what inspired me to write Million Dollar Women. Um, hearing these stories, realizing that we all face the same hurdles, made me want to help more women get over their fears of raising money. And the point of all this is not just to have money in the bank account, although we sure like that, right, when you're running a business. And I can't wait to hear your stories when we get into the Q&A. Um, but it's really about how do you get to the revenue levels that will give you the kind of business and the kind of life that you want. Because there's no point in having your own business if it isn't working for you. Um, then you've just created a job for yourself, basically. You're not really creating a business. Because a business should give you a better 
lifestyle than you would have had working for someone else. And I'm the first one to say that was not the case for me. For four years, I probably had a worse lifestyle and took home less money than had I been working for someone else. But then I turned that around. And I really want to help more people turn that corner. And we'll talk more about that you know, during the Q&A. But I will share that for the book, I told my own story of building Little Pim into a high revenue generating company through raising capital, through having the right partners, through having enough um, cash or runway as we call it to make a few mistakes and to weather a few storms. Um, within the first two years of my business, one of our distributors went under and took $120,000 of our money with him. That was just devastating. You know, that was like a quarter of our income at the time. Um, right around that same time, we all came to work one day in February and we heard a little drip, drip, drip from the ceiling. And within minutes, six feet of tin ceiling had fallen onto our desks, and we had to just get up and evacuate. We were able to go back and get some files, but that was it. We had to move out of that office and relocate. Um, you know, these things happen. There are just a lot of um, bumpy times, as you all know, on this call in a business. So having that cash in the bank is really what keeps people from going under sometimes. Um, the statistics show that women-run businesses are actually twice as likely to shut down because they run out of cash. So there is a real issue around capital. Um, the reason I'm so focused on a million dollars is that it's not that everything gets so much easier when you get to a million in revenues, but three things do happen when you hit a million in revenues. One is by then you've really figured out sort of the business of your business. What is the money-making machine at the center of your business? It's not just you hustling all the time. You've, had, you've built some structures. You've figured out how to acquire your customers. You've figured out how to outsource a few things. So now you're really poised for growth. That's the first thing. The second thing is you start to have access to some really exciting networks to help you grow your business to the next level. I'm thinking specifically of uh, an entrepreneur's organization that I joined, EO, Entrepreneur's Organization, where you need to have a million in revenues in order to be part of it. You start to get taken seriously as a business at, as of a million in revenues. And the third thing is you have access to capital. Once you hit that million dollar mark, there are a lot of investors who will want to take your meeting, find out how you got there, find out what your plans are for scaling up to the next level, and will be more interested in investing once you've hit a million. So that's why I'm really focused on that goal. Um, I also learned along with that stat about so few women getting venture capital funding that only 3% of all women entrepreneurs ever get to a million in revenues. So 97% of all women-run businesses are under a million. And in fact, they're more like around 200,000 in annual revenues. So there's a lot of catching up we need to do. Women have been starting businesses at twice the rate that men have over the last 20 years. So that's really exciting. There are 10 million of us. You've probably seen some of these stats, and we generate 1.4 trillion in revenues for the United States. But 97% of us are still running kitchen table businesses or businesses that will never hit the million dollar mark. And that's the change I want to see in my lifetime and that I'm dedicated to working on for the next five years through the book, through workshops, through partnerships with government and nonprofit organizations. And it is just eminently doable to get another million women to a million in revenues, which will, by the way, then generate another trillion in revenues for the United States. So I'm really excited about that. Um, I'm going to wrap up soon so that we can have some questions, but I did just want to share that in addition to telling my story in Million Dollar Women, which I encourage all of you to buy if you want to read 
about someone else's trials and tribulations of running a business. It can be uh, comforting. And I did write the book that I wish I had had as I was getting my business you know, to, to scale up. So I told my story, but more importantly, I interviewed seven women from around the country who are running million-dollar businesses that they built from scratch. And it was fascinating hearing their stories. Not all of them raised money, but most of them did. Um, they came out of very diverse backgrounds. Many of them did not go to business school. I didn't go to business school either. So a big part of my message of the book is you really you can start from anywhere and run a million-dollar business. And some of these women are running 40 and $50 million businesses. So just to give you a little taste, um, there's a woman running a private jet company out of Palm Springs. She's one of the only women-run private jet companies. She was a school teacher and an oboist. And she took flying lessons at age 28 decided she loved it, was a private pilot for a few years, and then lost her job after 9-11 and decided to start her own private jet company and now runs a very, very successful private jet company um, out of Palm Springs. But she literally Googled how to start a business. You know, that was where she got her start. Then we have, um, and her name is Denise Wilson. We have Heather Hiles, who works out of San Francisco, who used to be um, uh, in the WNBA and the Lessons she learned on the court, she's now applying to scaling up her startup, which has um, over $10 million in venture-backed funding. It's an educational platform that plugs into LinkedIn and allows you to share your entire portfolio of work, whether it has graphics or music or visuals, when you're going on a job interview. It's a great idea. And those are just two of the women. I have women who've been on Shark Tank. I have women who are in the food and beverage industry. So no matter what industry you're in, there's probably someone in my book who will remind you of whatever you're facing, and hopefully you can gain some good insights from them. I really wish I could have heard from more women who built multi-million dollar businesses as I was scaling up. So again, I wrote the book I wish I'd had, and it's been so gratifying to be out speaking with women all over the country who are growing their businesses and sharing my story, sharing the story of the women in the book, and learning from them because everything's changing all the time, so we always have to keep, keep learning from each other. So I'm going to stop there. I'm really excited to take questions and have a conversation. So let's, let's dig in. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I'm really excited for the conversation we're about to have. Um, if you have a question or you want to share your story, please press 1 that you'd like to, indicate that you'd like to speak live on the call, or you can email in your thoughts to us at info at businessfwd. Our first caller is Laura. Laura, your line is open. Oh, thank you. I'm delighted to be here today, and it's a pleasure to meet you, Miss Julia. Thank you. Um, hi, Laura. I'm, hi. I am uh, on my way to the million-dollar business. I've been working for quite some time on it. I'm a healthcare provider and a nutritional specialist, and I have picked up a number of products and lines of services that are complementary to the work that I do so that it's not all in my lap. However, during the financial crisis that we've just come out of, I went on sabbatical for about four years of non-earning agreements working for the Red Cross and food banks in my local community. So I gained a lot of really good experience doing fundraising and designing systems and so forth. So I got some great experience, and now I'm reaching back into the market, and I'm getting some public speaking arrangements for my nutrition education model. And I'm right at the point that I'm, growth is starting to happen, and I'm getting ready to hire a personal assistant and put my show on the road. 
I've had people invite me to come to Sweden to teach my nutrition education model to MDs there. Um, so it's ready to branch out. And I just really think at this particular point in time, I could use somebody to help me pull the strings together and weave a step or two forward. Is that something that your uh, group does when you meet? You know, it sounds like you're at such an exciting inflection point with your business. And what I'm wondering is Thank how you. you could – yeah, no, congratulations on all you've built. And I love to hear that you are out fundraising because that's just such an important skill to have in life. And, and it's a muscle that you build. Yes. Each time you go raise money, you get a little better at it, a little stronger. It's a little less scary. <laughs> Um, but yeah. I would say, um, yeah, absolutely contact me through my website, which is juliapimsler.com. Um, I've been putting together some groups of women who are on an ambitious growth track, and it sounds like one of those might be a good fit for you. But my main advice okay. would be to join an entrepreneurial community, you know, even a local one, because being around other entrepreneurs who are building their businesses and finding ways to scale up is really your best resource. I always like to say you don't the only thing you have to be original about is what your business provides, you know, your service and it sounds like in your case, you know, it's, it's your healthcare expertise, but you don't have to reinvent the wheel about how to run a successful business. There are so many great models already right. out there and you can learn about those from joining a professional organization of entrepreneurs. You know, there's Vistage, there's BNI, um, I mention all of them in my book and there are also some free lists on my website at juliapimsler.com where you can gain access to those too. Wonderful, thank you. Um, as a Great. reminder, if, luck, you, if you have a question or you'd like to share your story, you can press 1 to speak live on the call, or you can email your thoughts into info at businessfwd. Our next caller is Susan from D.C. Susan, your line is open. Hi, hi, thank you very much for this opportunity. I'm not sure if I'm showing up as registered as Susan at FinstonConsulting.com. That's likely. But I'm also the co-founder and CEO of a biotech startup that is actually registered in uh, Ahmedabad, India, in the state of Gujarat, where the prime minister comes from. And uh, in some ways, I feel extremely fortunate because he actually signed off on our seed funding when he was chief minister in Gujarat. But India is not actually known for investing in research-based startups. And when I started this, I think this was like 2008, 2009, we thought that the culture was changing. And of course, culture is a very hard thing to change. Uh, and we're now at the stage where we have a number of projects that are getting ready for IND approval to go into phase one. But it's still very hard, as you mentioned, for women to raise funds as the CEO and non-scientist for biotech. And I'm wondering if you have any experience or thoughts specifically with regard to innovative biopharma. It's not digital, unfortunately. It's not a diagnostic or a health app. It's a straight-out novel oncology peptide. So it is obviously a long haul and very hard uh, for fundraising, you know, broadly, uh, including those other challenges I've mentioned. Are I'm you going after venture capital or angel funding? Which kind of capital are you looking for? Well, we've been limited by what we can get as being an Indian company because I would have loved to go with VCs, but frankly, when they hear that the company is located in India, and that's where our seed funding came from, that makes it challenging. Right now, uh, we're under consideration by a number of Fortune 100 companies 
uh, that in Europe and the U.S. because we've reached that that pre-IND stage where they're where they're interested. But really, you know, I'm willing to talk to a broad variety of of potential partners as long as they're the right partner. We haven't gotten a lot of traction with VCs because most of the VCs that invest in cancer research are not really interested in an Indian company. Yeah, I could see how that would be a challenge. At the same time, angel investors have a little more flexibility, and I'll try to answer this question in a way that could be useful for everyone on the call, because regardless of what kind of company you have, what product or service you're selling, the fundraising process is very similar. Um, I mean, I hear that you have additional challenges because being Indian-based, and I, I don't, uh, you know, I recognize that. And at the that. same time, you know, they gave us our money to start with, so I have to be grateful for that. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Great springboard. But I would say if you can get into rooms where you'll find angel investors who care about investing in biotech and in medical research, that would be your best option because they have a lot more flexibility about what kind of companies they can invest in. We always have to remember that VCs are not investing their own money. They're investing the money of the LPs, which are the limited partnerships that have given them money for their fund. So they have to report up to these LPs, and they have a lot of strict guidelines around what kinds of companies they can invest in and also what rate of return they're looking for. They're looking for a very high return, you know, like 10x within five to seven years. So that's a pretty high bar. A lot of companies have trouble meeting that bar. Angel investors, while of course they want a good return, you know, maybe it's 5x. They're not looking for this you know, incredibly skyrocket 10x, which only really technology firms can even dream of. So with angel investors, it's also a little bit more of, um, I'll use a little French here because I've got, I've got that option, of coup de coeur, which in French means um, a little, you know, passion play. It's like maybe they just fall in love with the fact that, you know, you've made this incredible product for uh, young mothers, right? And they want to help with that. Or in your case, they have a family member who suffered from cancer and they really want to be part of solving that problem. So that's the best place to look, I would say, is, is angel investors. Great. So we've got a, a similar question from Karen who emailed in asking, what do you think about crowdfunding? Do you think that's a, a successful option now for people looking to raise money? I think crowdfunding is a great place to start to build your fundraising muscles. Um, it forces you to figure out how to tell your story in a compelling way, and you have to make a video, so you get very clear on what is going to be you know, appealing to a potential investor or donor about your company. I will just make the distinction that there's two types of crowdfunding right now. There's reward, rewards-based, where people are getting a product or a service when they give you money for your company, but they're not getting ownership in your company. Then there's what's called equity-based, which means that they are actually getting ownership in your company. That is very, very new. There are still a lot of regulations that have not been passed around that, and it's not going to be widely available for another few months. But they did just pass Title III that says that anyone can invest in a company and get equity through crowdfunding. It used to be only accredited investors, and accredited investors, for those of you not familiar with that term, are people who have at least a million in net assets, who make at least 200000 a year, and if they invest in your company and for whatever reason you, know, you lose that money, it's not going to mean they, they can't retire. So now they've changed the laws a bit, and it's going to open it up to a lot more fluid equity investment. So back to the question, I think both rewards-based and equity fundraising crowdfunding is a good place to start, but it's, it's, 
I see it as a stepping stone to raising money from angels and VCs. The reason it's a little better to raise money from angels if you have that option is that they usually can write additional checks in a way that most people who fund you through crowdfunding can't. It's, it's lower dollar amounts on crowdfunding, and people don't usually come back in with another round of capital for you if you come back to them you know, a year later saying, okay, we've hit those milestones, now we want to buy even more inventory or hire even more people or expand our product line even more. They, they rarely have that second check for you. Great. Our next question is going to come from Kara. She's in North Carolina. Kara, your line is open. Hi. Thank you so much for your wisdom. Um, I, I have a question. I'm just starting, and um, you know, I have a great idea. Everyone likes it, but I need to get those angel investors. What's the best sure. way to do that? Can you tell us real quick what your idea is? I'd love to hear it. Um, it's actually beauty products that are um, that are that don't have chemicals. Um, I've done a lot of research, and I work for the government, and so many of the chemicals, like I mean, and makeup products like L'Oreal and all these other companies, are selling horrible products um, in the U.S. because our standards are are so are so low. So I've I've created a product that that doesn't have all those chemicals, and um, I'm marketing it. But I need I need the seed money, and so. I'm just wondering how I, I start. I start. Yeah, sure. No, that, that sounds exciting. And it's, again, it's great to solve a problem that you've experienced, right? If you've used those products and haven't been happy with the, the level of chemicals in them and you feel this product is going to help solve that problem, that's terrific. And, you know, you're reminding me that everybody on this call probably has the key ingredient that you need to be a successful fundraiser. And that is not mastery of the numbers, although you do need to get that eventually, or at least kind of become conversational in all the language around fundraising. Um, but you have to have a great deal of passion you know, for your company and for how big you think you can take it and really tell that story in a compelling way. So the more passionate you are and the more you can get that across to the potential investor, the higher chance you'll have of, of getting that check. And so in your case, um, if you have a product already, it's best to you know, take that to a potential meeting and let them demo it, show them your passion about why you created the company, where you think it can go, um, start mapping out in just a brief PowerPoint, maybe 10 slides, where you are now and where you're going to be, let's say, two years from now. Really the main question an investor has when they're meeting with you is, if I invest my money, what are you going to do with it? How are you going to turn it into you know, five times what it is today? So they want to hear a bit about where you are now, but they actually want to hear much more about where you're going to be two years from now when you have successfully executed on your vision. And so that's what I would suggest you spend more of your time on is figuring out what will this company look like when we have successfully scaled up. And a great way to do that, and this goes for anyone's business, is to look at other companies either in your space, you know, another beauty company that's done that, or in a parallel space. So in my case with Little Pim, our language teaching company for kids, we looked at Baby Einstein. I don't know if anyone has kids who are you know, 10 and up, but Baby Einstein was just all the rage when my kids were little. And it was a DVD series that made millions of dollars and was sold to Disney. So I often told that story when I was meeting with investors. They didn't know my brand, Little Pim. We were brand new, but I could say, it's, we're going to do something similar to what Baby Einstein did. Or I would say, we're like Rosetta Stone for kids. So whatever shortcuts you can give to investors to help them quickly understand the type of business that you're running, what kind of business model you're working off of, 
will get you to a yes much faster. And, and I just wrote a whole blog actually about how to get to yes. Um, it's on juliapimsler.com under blog. And so that would also be a great place to start if you're having a little anxiety about sitting down with potential funders. Does that help? Yes, thank you. Our next question is going to come from Paula in Oregon. Paula, your line is open. Hey, Paula. Thank you. Very. Yes, hi. Um, thank you for taking uh, my call here. And Actually, I'm in Israel. Now, uh, I am based in Oregon also, but I live in Israel, and I'm building my startup in Israel. Oh, shalom. Um, <laughs> shalom. <laughs> yeah. um, so... And I've had uh, the I've I've been pretty fortunate to be uh, part of an accelerator here in Israel a couple of years ago for six months, and it was wonderful because I'm not as young as most typical entrepreneurs, and my startup is called Boomer Surf, and it's to help the baby boomers and the less technol less tech savvy with their technology, and it's kind of like oh, Uber based. Okay. It's a community based, and we're helping each other. The more tech savvy, you're helping the less tech savvy. Oh, that's and so, yeah. So we, you know, and I've had, I have some wonderful advisors. I, I have a really good team, and I've bootstrapped this now for two years. And we have some IT that we're, we're, we're it's a utility patent that we're still, we're, we're just defending some claims right now. So we have a lot of things that we've done. But still, it's so imperative now that I raise money. And it, this is not an easy task, even though um, you know, it seems like it should be. It's certainly not, especially no, when you're trying to. No, it's not for anyone. To, it's so terribly hard. So yeah. I feel your pain. Well, I'll tell you just a little aside. I have a son who went to all the right schools, and he did a startup, and Within a month, he already had 120,000 of seed money, and he said, "You know, Mom, if you don't raise your money in the first month, 100,000, you should quit." <laughs> you know? like, okay, well, I beg to differ. It took me nine months to raise my money, so um, I'm, I'm with yeah, you. There's so, other ways to make that happen. Right. So, so right now, the, the big dilemma is we're trying to, with baby boomers, especially and older people, we're trying to keep this business model at such a low entry point where we don't have any barriers. And so we get people signed up, but we still need to build out our health team and we need to do, build out the content. And we really need some funding. So we can't show that we have a million dollars in revenue coming in. We show, we show potential. But it's still very difficult and, uh, to raise this you know, initial seed money, and there's good money and bad money. We had someone that said they were going to raise money, and of course it, wasn't, it was not good money, shall we say. <laughs> it was yes, well, thank you for money. raising that because, yeah, not all money is money you should take. I always say uh, you need right. to do as much research on them as they're doing on you when you're considering taking investment because there are you know, bad actors out there, as there are in every sector, and you need to take money from people who are going to be true allies and partners. So how could I be helpful? Right. And so, so I was wondering, I mean, you know, are there women-oriented like, you know, like you're doing, you know, are there places that somebody like myself can go to and pitch to that you know, are more – uh, women-friendly 
Yes, for investing. there are. There, you, you actually brought up something that has some good news around it. After sharing some of these bad news stats, I can share some good news that of angel investors, um, 26% of all angel investors are women, and that number has leapt up. In 2013, it was only 18% of all angel investors are women. It's now up to 26%. So increasingly, you can sit down with women who hold the purse strings and the ability to invest in your company. And I have a whole list on my website at juliapimsler.com of the women-friendly um, angel and VC groups. So I would say that's a good place to start. And then talking to uh, other CEOs, I always say that's your best resource in fundraising is CEOs who have already raised money who can tell you who they raised their money from, give you insights you'll never find online about their investors, and uh, really pick their brain about what worked and what didn't, which is why joining those entrepreneur organizations is so incredibly value, valuable when you're looking to scale up your business. I hope that was helpful. Good luck. Thank you. Our next question is going to come from Allison in Florida. Allison, your line is open. Hi. Um, thank you for taking my question. I've been listening to all the other women. I've already also gone and, and uh, purchased your book, which I'll read right after oh, this. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, so Mike, uh, I, I didn't think I had any, uh, anything to ask, but I've been thinking about it more as you've been speaking. And my company actually started as for-profit, and we've decided to become non-profit. And I'm waiting through the paperwork now uh, to file um, that way. But my question is, when I go to investors as a nonprofit, I guess it's more of, an, of a um, of a I don't know if it's as much of an investment type question I'm asking them as much as a support type question. Correct? Yeah. I mean, it's still asking them to invest in your vision, but they hear the return is not going to be monetary. It's going to be a tax write-off, and then right. also the the pleasure of being part of an organization that shares their values. I assume. Yes, yes. So we are a social awareness campaign um, and a movement on a topic that's pretty pretty much out there right now, and it's brand new. So for a lot of things, this is a new venture for everybody in the topic. So that's I'm exciting. curious. But, you know, actually, for-profit yeah. fundraising and nonprofit fundraising have a lot more in common than they have different. I mean, I've done both. I've raised $26 million in total. About $20 million was it was in the nonprofit world. And it really is about getting comfortable making the ask, you know, knowing what the dance is with the person you're sitting mm -hmm. down across from. And, again, I have that blog I mentioned earlier, which is all about making the ask that's up on my website right now that, that could be helpful as you go out there to uh, raise your first dollars. I'll definitely do that. Um, and so my main, I think that my specific question is that I've changed my ask a little bit. I haven't made it really yet, but I've changed my ask a little bit from trying to raise money in order to sell products and programs about this topic, you know, again, as a nonprofit, but there are places where maybe, you know, people need to buy items. But mm -hmm. I would want to raise money in order to provide these items for, you know, for maybe later other organizations may want to purchase from us. But now I think it's more important to get this information into people's hands, regardless of whether I need to make a sale or not. So I was wondering if you thought I was going down, if that was a, a better track. Um, to ask for money to help us kind of spread the word versus just trying to get into the marketplace and get customers you know, for, our, you know, a, for our products. Yeah, I mean, whenever you're raising money for whether it's nonprofit or for-profit, I always advise that you try out your pitch on a few people who, who don't matter. And I don't mean that in a dismissive mm -hmm. yeah. way, but I mean <laughs> people who really are not the folks who are going to write you a check. So when I first started 
pitching for venture capital, I called up people who funded like biotech companies, right, who I should Mm -hmm. now introduce to the the first caller from this call. But there was no way they were going to fund my company. But it gave me a great chance to practice my pitch, to see what resonated, to have them kick the tires. Another great way Mm -hmm. to find out if your pitch is working is if you pitch to someone, again, preferably someone who is not going to write you that check, save them for later on when you get better at it, and then ask them to pitch your company back to you. Say, what did, uh-huh. what did you hear me say? If you had to go pitch my oh, company great. to someone else, how would, you, how would you describe it? And that is very eye-opening because, you know, Mark Twain has this famous quote, which is, uh, the greatest danger of communication is thinking that you have done so. Right? You think you've been really clear and direct and concise <laughs> about what your business does, and they've heard something uh-huh. totally different. So I, I would say, I, you know, I call it, I don't know what they don't know. People. Exactly. Try it out on a few people, see if it resonates, and then you know, go, with, go with what's working. Do a little kind of market research. You can do market research around fundraising as well, right, just like we do mm-hmm. with our products. See if these products stick, if people like them, and what should we change. Fundraising is not that mm-hmm. different. So good okay. luck with no, the nonprofit. Thank thank- yeah, we're trying to make uh, college campuses safer, so that's the big picture. Oh, that's um, a wonderful goal. But- but I appreciate it. I, I, yeah, I'm going back and forth on my direction and my ask right now. But thank you very, very much for this. Appreciate Best it. Best of luck to you out there. Stay brave. Thank you. As a reminder, if you want to speak live on the call, you can press 1, or you can email your thoughts into info at businessfwd.org. Um, and we just got an email from Portia in Florida. She asks, have you given guidance to someone in the real estate industry? If so, what kind of advice can you give me in this area? No, I don't go into specific industry advice only because from being in my entrepreneurs organization for the last four years, I've realized that we all have so much more in common than different regardless of whether you're launching a line of beauty products or in real estate or have a services company. We're all facing the same challenges. And so I don't go into industry specific because really there's just three things that you have to get down if you want to go big with your business and become a million-dollar woman or or man, because I think there are some men on this call, and you're, of course, welcome. These lessons are not women-specific. We just have a few additional hurdles that they may not face. But the three things you have to get down are the right mindset, the right skill set, and the right network. And that is what I learned from talking to all the women I interviewed for the book and being in my entrepreneurs organization these last few years. So that sounds really simple, but it's simple and not easy, right? The mindset is actually the hardest part of the three because if you don't believe that you can run a big successful business and you don't plan it out and visualize it and, and work towards that success in your mind, you can really self-sabotage. And the negative self-talk that many of us suffer from can just – get right in your way and hold you back. And I wrote a lot about that in the book, about limiting beliefs that we may have about our abilities to be the CEO. I shared with you that when I hit that first big tough point with my business, I thought, well, maybe I'm just not CEO material, right? I didn't go to business school. So we really can be our own worst enemies. That's the mindset. That's the number one thing you need. The number two is the skill set. And part of that skill set is learning the fundraising dance, figuring out where to go get the capital for your business, but also surrounding yourself with the people who can complement the skills that you have because no one's good at everything and you have to know what you're really good at and what you need to outsource and find those people. And then the last thing is the network, and that is getting into the right rooms of people where you can raise the money you need for your business or find those strategic partners or just spend time with business owners who are a few years ahead of where you are and who've solved the problems that you're just coming up on. 
it's a very generous community, the entrepreneurial community, and people help each other all the time, as I'm sure many of you know on this call. But we don't always spend as much time as we should in rooms with other entrepreneurs where we can help each other solve our problems. So I, I know that wasn't specifically about real estate, but I hope that, that that could still be helpful for you. Wonderful. Thank you. We have a number of other questions that have come in, Julia, so just let us know if, if you're running out of time. But do you, can I go to one more right no, now? Yeah, I have about five more minutes. And, I, and while we have a little pause here, I will mention that on my website at juliapimsler.com, there is an online course about fundraising that you can take in your pajamas. It's uh, $99, so it's very affordable. And that is the online version of the class that I've been teaching for three years here in New York where the women have raised a collective $10 million. So I welcome you to check it out. And then there's also the 10 Top Secrets of Peak Performers. So two classes that can help you get much closer to being a million-dollar woman or man. Great. Um, so our next question was emailed in from Carolyn from Bridgeport. She asks, I am the volunteer president of a nonprofit organization that is in high demand in our market. We use social media networking and community service to provide Latinos with opportunities to connect, engage, and lead. The organization is also poised for growth, but we don't want to get boxed into a typical nonprofit funding model where we'd have to adapt our programming to match funder priorities. What's the most efficient way to fundraise for operating expenses without compromising our programming? Oh, I really feel you on that question because for five years I was a nonprofit fundraiser and it was really challenging to find people to support our operating costs because that's not sort of the sexy fundraising, right? Everyone wants to give to programs and something that's very direct impact. Um, I don't think there's any magic bullet around this one. I'm sure you're doing the things that most nonprofits do, which is try to create proposals and opportunities that are part program, part operating, so that funders feel that they're getting part of you know, something that's very specific to the things they care about, but then also supporting your operating costs um, kind of baked into that. I will share, though, that more and more nonprofits are finding ways to have earned revenues, and we're seeing blurrier lines between businesses and nonprofits, which I think is actually very exciting. There's a real opportunity now for nonprofits to come up with revenue-generating ideas, you know, whether it's selling um, you know, access to certain seminars that they do, whether it's creating a line of products, whether it's teaming up with a, a business where perhaps you're providing the labor and the business is selling a product where they've used your labor. There's all kinds of really creative models emerging. So I wouldn't be shy as a nonprofit about looking into actually making money and having a revenue stream. And you will find that the funders you're going to for support will actually think that that is one of the main reasons to fund you because the more nonprofits are able to be self-sustaining, the more attractive they are to funders. So I hope that's helpful. Great. Thank you so much. So I guess that's all the time we have for today, Julia. Thank you so much for your time and your advice, and thank you to everyone who joined. Thank you, and I hope you all have a great day. I love being with you today, and good luck, everyone out there. This is um, you know, one of the hardest and best things you can do, right, is run your own company. So I, I am very sympathetic, and uh, I'm a cheerleader for all of you. And please check out Million Dollar Women if you want to learn from the women who I interviewed about running their multi-million dollar businesses and hear a few more of my war stories, too, along the way. Thanks for having me. Take care. Stay brave. Bye-bye. Thanks.